Well, our series is called Free to Be Me, and I got to tell you, I had a lot of thinking to do about whether or not to use that title, because I was afraid that the Free to Be Me title would have sounded kind of touchy-feely, a little bit like something you would see on the Oprah channel. Nothing against Oprah, but I just was afraid that maybe it might feel that way. It might have that vibe or sort of a chicken soup for the soul, which I like those books. But there's a reason why I picked this title, Free to Be Me. About eight or nine years ago, I think I did a series called Free to Be Me, but I tell you, I've learned a lot in those years. And I'll tell you what I learned. I learned, even though I'm sure what I taught back then was, was true, I've learned that a lot of things that bring freedom are things that we don't first think about as catalysts for freedom. And so I bring this series to you. Last week we began, and, and there was one important concept that I think is, is salient to our discussion today, and it, it is this. Most people don't know what it's like to say, I am free to be me, for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of, us, first of all, many of us would have to begin with a statement that goes something like this. I'm not me. I don't know why it is. I mean, there are myriad reasons why we develop what psychologists call the false self. Could be because of the way you were raised. Could be something as simple as your birth order. But just somewhere along the line in life, you interact with people who, for some reason, communicate to you that if you're ever going to be successful, you have to begin to develop different shades of personality in order to get along. And before long, you wake up one day, and maybe it's by the time you're in junior high school, you wake up one day and you think, you know, I don't know who I am. I'm not me. But then we begin to seek freedom for that false self, and we wind up two steps removed from true freedom because, first of all, I'm not free, and the second statement, uh, first statement is, I'm not me. So throughout this series, I, I want to share with you what the Scriptures have taught me and what life has taught me uh, from God's perspective on the catalyst for true freedom. And, and throughout this series, what I'm going to share with you is some of those catalysts don't feel like good things. And today, I want to talk to you about the biggest bully of them all. In fact, when I talk about embarrassment and good, it seems like those two things, those two words don't go in the same sentence because, frankly, there are many of you who probably fear embarrassment more than anything, anything else. I have friends that are like that. I mean, I, I know they're strong people, they're good people, they're productive people, energetic people, but they're scared of being embarrassed. So today, I want to talk to you about the marvelous power of embarrassment, and I want to let you know that this is autobiographical. This is something that I've lived. But for a few moments, I need to set this up, so I'm going to have to ask for your permission, maybe for the first half of this message, to be a little bit dry, because there are some underlying mechanics that make embarrassment potentially a very positive thing in your life and my life. So let's take this word embarrassment and let's set it over here on the shelf for a moment and forget about it as you give me the time to kind of set this up. According to the Bible, pride is the most toxic substance in the universe. Now very quickly, I want to deal with a couple of issues that we have with this word pride because there are some legit uses of it in the English language. For instance, if you say, I take pride in my work, that's not a bad pride. I'm not even sure pride is the correct word there. It just simply means that you're diligent and you're responsible and you want to do a good job. So if you use it in that sense, nothing wrong with that. I take pride in my work. Or I take pride in my appearance. Now, obviously, there's a line that can be crossed there. But what you're simply saying is, I am careful in the way I present myself. Or I even told my son this in, in the office before I came out. I said, I am very proud of you. Now, in that, I mean I love the traits and the way he lives his life. And those traits are something that make me feel very good about him. So there's a legit usage of the word pride there. But really, in the biblical sense, that's not the kind of pride that the Bible talks about as being toxic. We do know that pride was behind the first sin. And the first sin was not committed by Adam and Eve. 
The first sin was committed by an angel. In fact, God created the angels and gave them a free will. And one of the angels who was evidently in charge of leading the worship of heaven said, I want to be worshiped. That angel's name was Lucifer. And basically, he, if you look at Isaiah, and the book of Isaiah tells us his statements before the world was ever created, Lucifer was saying, you know, I don't see why God's getting all the props. I mean, I'm pretty important too, and I'm beautiful. So consequently, I should be getting some worship. And, and the thing about poison, poison spreads. Have you ever noticed how someone with a toxic attitude affects other people as well? Well, it happened with the angels. And according to the book of Revelation, a third of the angels sided with Satan. It was no problem for God, though. He just thumped him out of heaven. And we know those angels as demons today. So the very first sin was pride. Satan is saying, I want to be like God. Well, the very first sin committed by humans was a result of pride. Because Satan came along, talked to our first parents, and said, hey, you know what? You don't have to listen to God. God's not telling you the truth. He's trying to keep something back from you. If you want it, you have to reach out and get it, regardless of what God says. Pride was behind the first sin. Now, work with me as though this is a geometric proof. If pride is behind sin, and sin, according to the book of Romans, is behind everything bad in our world, then you can draw the conclusion that pride is behind all evil in our world. So consequently, pride is the most toxic substance in the whole world. Now, there are various shades of pride, you know? Um, sometimes we think pride only takes one of these voices, but pride can take several voices. Let me walk you through them. The first voice is, I'm better than you. Now, this is behind all kinds of things. It's behind someone who's difficult at work, and some of you know people like that. I mean, they just have the feeling that, hey, I should get more respect, I should get more money, I should get more of everything because I am better than everybody else here. They'll never articulate it, but that's the attitude. You know people like that. But if you went to the deeper shades on that paint chip, it would go to racism. That's what's wrong with racism. What is wrong with racism? Pride is what's wrong with racism. Because someone who is a racist has the feeling that he is better than people of other races. So that's one voice that pride takes. Another voice that pride takes is, I can do whatever I want. You know anybody who has the attitude that rules are for other people? I mean, I, get, I, just, I drive down Kellogg, and there are people that just sell right through red lights. It's sort of like, you know what? Red lights are not for me. I don't do red lights. Either that or they're texting. But in any event... <laughs> Pride, pride carries the voice. I can do whatever I want. Some of you may be, you may, there's a lady here, uh, and you're married to a guy. Just got that attitude. I can do whatever I want. Why? Because I'm a guy. That's pride. And then there's a third voice that pride takes, and that voice says, my way is right. Do you know, actually, that very concept is the essence of sin? Because in the book of Isaiah 53, the Bible tells us why Jesus died on the cross. Listen to this. All we like sheep have gone our own way. And God, the Father, has laid on Jesus the crookedness of us all. Think about that. The very quintessence of sin is, I am going my own way. You know, we, we think about sin as being, you know, something of great harm or great shame. But really, the essence of sin, the quintessence of it, is pride. I'm, I want to go my way because my way is right. In the book of Psalms, chapter 10, verse 4, the Bible speaks of pride. It says, in, in his pride, the wicked does not seek God in all his thoughts. And this, look at these next two words. Um, well, actually, I'm two words deep into this. There is, now think about these two words, no room for God in his thoughts. That's pride. 
You know, here's the thing. If you're, if you're dealing with a proud person, you will notice that person has no room. Oftentimes that person is a terrible husband or a terrible wife or a terrible parent or a terrible employee. Why? Because there's no room for anybody else. Their life is so full of self. There's no room. So that's a third voice of pride. And then here's a fourth voice. That's the idea that everybody should listen to me or everybody should look up to me or everybody should worship me. There are several voices that pride takes, and we've looked at some of them, but at the end of the day, pride is the inflated self. But here's what we all need to think about since we all wrestle with pride in some form. Wherever pride exists, something bad is going to happen. In my life, your life, pride is a predictor. Pride says something bad is going to happen. I want to walk you through five scriptures that tell us five things that pride produces. And again, just please work with me as we set this up. In Proverbs chapter 14, verse 3, the Bible says, A fool's proud talk becomes a rod that beats him. I don't know what word comes to your mind, but I think about pain. If somebody was beating you with a stick right now, you would feel pain. The Bible said that a fool's pratter is a rod that beats him. So pride produces pain. You'll love this next one and because a lot of you see this every day in proud people. Proverbs 13.10, pride leads to conflict. You know anybody who's always in a conflict? It's true. That always is a proud person, isn't it? I mean, we'll talk about humility in a moment, but hum humble people don't get into arguments. But proud people do. Pride leads to conflict. Okay, it leads to pain, leads to conflict. Number three, Proverbs 29, 23, pride ends in humiliation. So if there's pride in me, I'm headed for humiliation. Proverbs 11, 2, you might argue this is a different, this is a synonym for the last one, but I think there's a nuance here. Pride leads to shame. And then finally, pride leads to destruction. Now, I want to be real quick about something because many of you who are hearing this are God followers. And you're saying, Mark, are you saying that if I have pride in my life that I'm going to hell? No. Destruction there doesn't necessarily mean your personal destruction. It can mean the destruction of something precious to you. As a leader of a great church, I've had the sometimes um, painful privilege of being called in to help a church whose pastor has fallen into deep moral sin. And I have seen some, what I, what I believe are, are really good spiritual leaders go off the rails and have an affair, let's just call it what it is, commit adultery, and it's brought about the destruction of their ministry. Not their personal destruction, but the destruction of their, of their ministry. I've seen pride cause the destruction of a marriage. I've seen pride cause the destruction of a career. So, again, I'm just, just, just telling you what God says. God says if there's pride, bad things are going to happen. And we saw five things. Pain, conflict, humiliation, shame, and ultimately destruction. And by the way, this is you know, just like, oh, Mark, I don't know if I want to go to church on Mother's Day and hear this, but you really do need to hear this. There's a reason why pride brings those things. It's not the law of averages. In Leviticus 26, verse 19, God says, I will break your stubborn pride. So in essence, what God is saying is, look, Mark, if you have pride in, God's speaking to me, Mark, if you have pride in your life, you can expect five things to happen. You can expect pain, conflict, humiliation, shame, and destruction. And God is saying, there's a reason for that. I will make sure it happens. Now, at first blush, it could sound like God is being mean, but you understand pain has brought all the bad into the world. And so when God allows me to experience negative consequences from having pain, that is God's way of saying, Mark, I love you too much to let you go down this painful road. Still working with me? If pride is bad, then the opposite must be good. And it is. What is the opposite of pride? Humility. 
Now, let me say a couple things real quickly so that we'll understand what humility is. When I grew up in church, I used to have this, and I grew up in a traditional church and a good church, but I used to hear preachers preach, and I sort of had the idea that humility is like walking around stoop-sheltered, like I'm no good, I'm never any good, you know, I'm, I know I'm not worth anything. That didn't, that's not humility. Neither is humility low self-esteem, because low self-esteem can actually be a manifestation of pride. In fact, I've met some people who had low self-esteem for maybe because of someone, their appearance or because they didn't have any money. And I've seen them fix those things in their life. And I've watched the pendulum swing all the way from low self-esteem to inordinately high self-esteem. So I just want us to understand that that's not, those things are not humility. And by the way, I want to let you know that in my lifetime, some of the most humble people I've met are also some of the most successful I've known some of the most beautiful people who were humble, some of the most powerful people who were humble. So humility is not the absence of beauty or the absence of money or the absence of of esteem. Let me give you the voices of humility. If you want to know what humility is, here are the voices. First of all, I'm not better than anybody else. I don't expect privileges other people don't get. I'm not better. My race is not better. I'm not better than anyone else. I don't have a sense of entitlement, but, but don't, you, don't you worry in America about the growing sense of entitlement that people have today? And, and so pride says, I'm, I'm, I'm not better than anybody else. I'm not, I'm not worse than anybody else, but I'm not better. Now, this second voice is the one that means the most to me, because here's the deal. You can't see if I have humility. Humility is an internal trait, and I may not be able to see if you have humility in you. But there is an outward, there's an outward expression that always indicates a humble person. You ready for it? Gratitude. I am grateful for what I have. Anytime you're around a grateful person, you're around a humble person. You ever know anybody who's just grateful for every little thing you do? I mean, you can't, nothing you do is too small. You can just do just simple, ordinary things, and that person will be grateful for what you do. And, and they're grateful for everything they have in their life. And just you hear them talk, and their talk is full of gratitude. You always know when you're around a grateful person, you're around a humble person. The third voice of humility is, I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve you. When I think about New Spring, I think about the hundreds of people who volunteer in Kids World and Tech, guys on the cameras right here, the guys up in the booth, the worshipers on the stage, all the Kids World volunteers, all the volunteers in guest services. You see them around in the guest services shirt. All of our volunteers in the parking lot security, what are they saying to you? They're saying, I'm here to serve. This isn't about me. This is about you. I am here to serve. Pride says I'm here to be served. But humility says, I am here to serve. And let me close with this fourth voice of humility. Humility says, I am comfortable in my own skin. I got issues. I got faults and flaws. But you know what? I'm cool. I'm, I'm not, not that I'm not trying to get better. I want to get better every day. But I'm comfortable in my own skin. I am who I am. If you get to know me, you get to know the real person. I am comfortable in my own skin. Now, a few moments ago, we talked about the five things that that pride brings. We said, nothing good's going to happen if I'm experiencing pride. I'm going to get pain. I'm going to get conflict. I'm going to get humiliation. I'm going to get shame. I'm going to get destruction. So, you know, you remember the old game shows for all of you old? You know, show them what they get. Show them what the prize is. What about humble people? What are they going to get? Man, let let this excite you. True humility and the fear of the Lord lead to riches, honor, and long life. 
Now, you have to understand those three things come on God's terms. I mean, riches may not necessarily be money riches. The Bible says the true riches are things that God gives you that money can't buy. But I also believe humility will lead to financial gain. Riches, honor, and life. Now, look at this verse, Proverbs 29, 23. Pride lands you flat on your face. Humility prepares you for honors. Now, to be honored means to be valued. Anytime you find the word honor in the Bible, generally it means value. For instance, some of you grew up memorizing the Ten Commandments, and you know the Fifth Commandment, which is a great commandment for today, honor your father and mother. What that means is value your father and mother. Now, go back to that verse with that context in mind, and think about what the Bible says about humility. Pride lands you flat on your face, but humility prepares you for honor. Now, what does a proud person want? A proud person wants to be valued. Don't you find it ironic? It's one of those beautiful God ironies. Don't you find it ironic that humble people get what proud people want? That's why a proud person is never satisfied. Because they, they want the honor, they want the value, but they keep screwing up and dealing with those five consequences we saw. Humble people get what proud people want. Now, everything I've said up to this point is going to pale in comparison to one statement as we analyze pride and humility. And that's found for us in the book of James chapter 4 in the 6th verse. Listen to this simple construct. The Bible tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now that word resist there means to set up as for a battle. If unfortunately you were in a city that was about to be attacked and you saw the opposing army setting up for an invasion of your city, that's where that word comes from. The Bible says, Mark... If you get full of yourself, God is going to set himself in battle against you. That I can't afford. But the Bible says he gives favor to the humble. Favor means, I always love to teach this, favor means entree. It gives you the opportunity to enter into opportunities that you wouldn't otherwise have. Oh, I love that, don't you? Don't you want that? Don't you want God to say, you know what? Because you're humble, I'm just going to, you know what? You're not trying to grab all this stuff for yourself, so I'm going to get it for you. That's the beauty of being humble. Therefore, the smart thing would be for us to humble ourselves, right? The smart thing would be for us to walk out of here today and say, I'm not going to be a proud person anymore. I'm going to humble myself. But most of us won't do that. The reason we won't do that is because we have some thinking that got inbred in us when we were very young, and it goes something like this. The people who get what they want out of life are the important people, the beautiful people, the influential people. So that's what I want to be. If I'm going to get what I want out of life, I have to be beautiful, I have to be influential, I have to be powerful. But therein lies the issue, because we all know ourselves, and I've found that the most beautiful people in the world still feel like they have parts of them that are not beautiful. So they have this issue. I've got to be beautiful, but there's something wrong with me. I have to be powerful, but I don't feel powerful. I have to be influential, but I don't feel like I have any influence. I've got to be one of the great people, but I'm, I know myself, and I've got issues. So what do we do at that point? If we really believe that the beautiful people get everything, but we have issues with ourselves, that's when we begin to do three things that can actually put us in deep bondage. We can begin to make it up, we can begin to cover it up, and we can begin to talk it up. Let's take that last one. You ever, you ever work with anybody 
or around someone, they're always talking about themselves. I'm, I'm this, I'm that, I've gotten this, I make this much money, I got this raise, I bought this house, I bought this car. What you're dealing with is you're dealing with someone who realizes that beautiful people get everything in life, and he doesn't feel like he is, and so consequently he's talking it up. Now what happens when we get into that mode, when we're not ourselves, because we've had to present this persona that we're hoping will get us entree into beautiful things of life, and we're, we're making it up, we're covering it up, and we're talking it up. Actually, I think that middle one is the biggest problem. We, we sort of cover it up. Well, that's a bondage. Because if you live like that, and many of us are living like that in some, at least some small part of our lives, we're terrified we're going to get found out. I mean, I was reading a story that happened in Kansas about a woman who got a diploma from a diploma mill, and she got hired to be a principal in one of our little cities here in Kansas. And students had done research on it, found out that she'd gotten this diploma, you know, from a diploma mill, and the woman wound up losing her job. I have a friend who's CEO of a company, successful CEO, but he falsified his resume, lost his... There are people that they they cover it up, they they talk it up, they, they make it up, but all their life, they're in peril. I mean, even, even if they get some stuff, it's like, what happens if I, if I get found out? <clears throat> but that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is, what if you make it up, cover it up, and talk it up, and you get by with it? What if people actually begin to believe the facade that you've created? Oh, now you're talking about real bondage. I remember many years ago, we hired a woman to be part of our staff, and she was a great volunteer, but she communicated to us that she had the skills for a position that we had open. And it wasn't long after we hired her, we realized that she didn't have any of the skills. And instead of just coming and saying, hey, I'm struggling here because we would have helped her any way we could, it was like she began to cover up all the problems. And the next thing you know, we had horrific issues in that one department. I mean, I cannot believe the painful shenanigans that this woman pulled in order to communicate that she was capable of doing a job that she wasn't capable of doing. You say, Mark, when you look back on that, are you angry at her? No, I'm so sympathetic with her. Because I think how difficult must that have been to live a life convincing people that you're capable of doing something, but all the time not having that capability. And again, the smart thing to do would be to humble ourselves. But we don't intend to do that, or we don't tend to do that, because we're afraid if we humbled ourselves and we really admitted what we have, the issues that we have, we're afraid that people would, would run us over. Or, or more terrifying than that is that they would mark us down. You ever go shopping? I mean, last week I was in a, I was in a city in Ohio, and there was a mall that had a Dillard's, and I do a lot of shopping at Dillard's, and I walked into it, and I discovered that it wasn't a normal Dillard's. It was an outlet. And there were clothes everywhere. I mean, they weren't sectioned by departments like at our Dillard's. There were just racks and racks and racks of clothes that had been marked down. And I think a lot of us are afraid to be honest about who we are because we're terrified that people would mark us down. And so we roll on toward disaster, holding on to our pride. I need to let you know I really know what I'm talking about today. If you're a New Springer, you know I'm in my 32nd year of leadership here. First week of June, I'll be here 32 years. And I've led through, I don't know about too many things, but I know about people and I know about leadership. I know things about leaders 
fact, I was just teaching on Leadership Monday in Ohio. Leaders have to be strong. Leaders have to be calm when all hell is breaking loose. Leaders have to be there before everybody else is. When I think about some of the most difficult season at New Spring, I mean, you look at the size of our church today, and you think, Mark, you have a great job because the church is so big. It's, it, it keeps me very busy, but I will tell you the most difficult seasons of my leadership have been at key strategic moments when we were taking the bold steps that would lead to our future. I remember when I was trying to explain to everybody we need to move 12 miles away to a milo field in northeast Wichita that was on a road that wasn't even finished yet. That makes all the sense in the world today, doesn't it? Unless you were in the traffic jam out there. <clears throat> but only a tiny minority of our church believed that at the time. See, leaders have to be there before everybody else. If, if you think leaders are just about collecting consensus and your group doesn't need a leader, leaders have to be there before everybody else is. Leaders have to stand there and take the questions and the blame and the misunderstanding and the misrepresentation and just absorb it. Not fight back, just absorb it. See, if you're a leader today, the measure of your leadership is not how much you can achieve, it's how much you can absorb. I'd like to take that message to Washington, but I'll just leave that aside. And I know about leaders, if they can't buckle when bold steps have been taken and it doesn't seem to be working out, there will always be that gap of time when you take the bold, painful steps and when you actually begin to reap the benefits. And leaders have to do all of that. And when the wind comes, usually another battle is started, so there's no time to savor the wind. And I lived that life for a lot of years. But all the time I lived that life as a leader, I had a big secret. The people around me knew some of it, but nobody, not even including Mary Alice, knew how deep it actually was. Because all the time that everybody looked at me as being a scintillating leader, I suffer from crippling anxiety. Strange. On the outside, if you'd watch my leadership, it would look like just the opposite. I, I used to hear people say this all the time, Mark's fearless. I mean, Mark, Mark's not afraid of anything. And yet, after making those bold decisions and standing up and saying, we're going to the other side, I would go home and I couldn't sleep at night because my stomach was churning all night long with the anxieties that I felt. So here I have this tension going on in my life. On the outside, I'm exercising the gift as God has given me, and I'm a great, not, not great maybe, but I'm a strong strategic leader. On the inside, my anxieties are just making me almost internally crippled. Can, can you imagine how it felt when that reputation grew? If you're there today and you have a secret, but you're managing in spite of it, I think you feel like it's chasing you, don't you? You're running hard. Maybe if I can stay ahead of it, it won't catch me. Or to mix my metaphors, I can remember what it felt like to me. It felt like I was on a high wire. When our church had 350 people, it was like the high wire was two feet off the ground. But then the high wire got moved to 20 feet and then 50 feet. And then I still remember when it felt like I was on a high wire and I couldn't even see the ground anymore. I mean... By 2010, we had a church of 350 had grown to a church of 4,000. We were growing faster than any church in Wichita's history. We had a television ministry that I wasn't all that crazy about at the time. We had churches around the country. We were one of the, by percentage, we were one of the fastest growing churches in America. Churches were saying, what in the world is going on in that church in Wichita, Kansas? 
And there was a part of me, just being real, I thought, maybe I'll get by and I'll never be discovered. And then came November 27, 2010. You say, Mark, what happened then? I still don't know. It was Saturday night. I was right over here and sitting where I normally sit on Saturday night before I come up on stage. I preached two services, felt just fine. Somewhere between the campus and between my house and Andover, in fact, I could take you to the very spot when it happened. I fell off the wire. I just fell off the wire. And I crashed. And the person who was large and in charge all those years, I, was, I, I wasn't a leader anymore. I couldn't even function. I was completely crippled. I mean, emotionally and mentally, <clears throat> I thought I was dying. <clears throat> I was sure that God was against me. I was feeling like I'd been a failure. You talk about me freaking everybody out. All the people who were close to me, I would ask them, have you ever seen any evidence of God at work in my life? And people were like, Mark, are you kidding? You got me through my divorce. I mean, you helped me through this. <clears throat> but at that moment, I was, I was so lost in a fog. See, that's the problem with covering something up. The day will come when you crash and you won't know what's real and what's not. And as I went down, finally, Mary Alice knew and our board was so gracious, they knew I needed to just get away. Now, you got to understand, I'm not even able to drive. I'm sitting in the passenger seat while my wife is driving. I had to miss Christmas Eve, which is my favorite service of the year. And I remember leaving for Phoenix on that Thursday morning. And about 4 o'clock in the morning, I knew our church needed some kind of statement. So I just typed out a message and said, this is where I am. I'm just exhausted and I need to get professional help. And I didn't release that statement until about 4 o'clock that afternoon when I got to Phoenix. <clears throat> but here I am. I'm like wondering if I've ever, God has ever used me. And when that statement hit Facebook and our website, all of a sudden in Phoenix that night, we just got this avalanche of email from the church. And people were saying, Mark, I accepted Jesus when you were preaching. Mark, our lives turned around. Our marriage was saved when we came to New Spring. And I, we would, Meryl and I would hand the computer back and forth to each other and we'd try to read and we were both sobbing so hard we couldn't read. I remember telling her on the airplane, I said, I don't think I can ever go back. See, what happened was when I was on the wire, I couldn't see the ground, but now I was on the ground, I couldn't see the wire anymore. Well, I'm, I'm out of time. <clears throat> but over the weeks with some help, I got better. And I was able to come back and went right on preaching. But I have an issue now. How much do I tell? You know, I, I could just say, hey, you know what? Out years of strategic leadership, I got burned out. And, um, you know, I was exhausted and I needed to get some rest, but I've got the rest and I'm back. I could either do that or I could tell the truth, the real truth. I could tell you and I could face the, the embarrassment of being a very flawed leader who sometimes has anxieties that are crippling. And if you were here in those days, you'll know that I not only told it, I actually did two series. I did a series called Intensive Care, which is still one of my favorite series. And I talked about how I hit the wall. And as if that weren't enough, I came back and did another series called Valleys. But when I came back and I shared with you what I was really dealing with, and even though it was embarrassing to have to admit that I was not what people thought I was, I discovered three facts, and I'll leave those with you. And these are the marvelous power of embarrassment.
First of all, I discovered I didn't have to hide anymore. That part of me that I kept hidden for so long and never let anybody know how anxious I was, I don't have to hide from that. Everybody knows that. I mean, all, all of you New Springers, everybody watches on television, people watch all around the world, everybody knows. You know what? The guy up there, he, he's crazy. You know, I mean, and people know that about me, and I'm perfectly fine with that. See, that's the thing about embarrassment. When we're terrified of that bully embarrassment, it's like, what if they find out about me? But at the moment that you open that up, it's like all of a sudden, you know what? I'm liberated. I don't have anything to run from anymore. The second thing is, I discovered that sharing my weakness didn't make people feel less of me. That's the really amazing thing. You know what happened? I begin to have people call me all the time and say, Mark, I deal with, I had CEOs calling me and saying, Mark, I, I, you know what you're talking about? I live with that. Can, can we go to lunch? Can you talk to me? I discovered that people are like, you know what? We know nobody's perfect. I always tell leaders, when you tell your team your faults, it's not news. <laughs> right? How many of you would like to tell your boss that right now? In fact, sharing my weakness has allowed me to minister to hundreds and hundreds of leaders around the country to talk them off the wire before they fail. And thirdly, it didn't push people away from me. It drew people to me. Now, why does embarrassment work? And I'm telling you this because there's somebody here today, and you, you desperately want to be the perfect wife, but now you're going through a divorce. And it's very painful to tell your friends. Or, or you work so very hard at your career, but you have to tell people now, I've been laid off. Or maybe you've been carrying around a secret, and it's out now. What is the marvelous power of embarrassment? You ready for this? Embarrassment is enforced humility. Embarrassment pushes us into the place that we should go, but we won't go. <laughs> 30 years ago, I should have told everybody, guys, I deal with crippling anxieties, and I should have gotten help. But I didn't. I rolled on. I functioned in the power of my gift and the grace of God. But the day came when I crashed. And God allowed embarrassment to enforce humility in my life. Well, what does humility bring? Riches, honor, long life. If I'm talking to someone here today who's in embarrassment, please know your future's not dark because of that embarrassment. You're just about to get free, free to be me, free to be who you are. And you won't have to walk on the wire anymore. Or if you're here today and you just say, you know what, Mark, I'm on the wire, but I'd really just rather not crash. Well, then you might just want to walk off the wire and become humble before God because you can avoid the pitfall. Thanks for being here. God bless you. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs>